0: All right, we're going to continue with our worship in the Lord's word to us in in his book, the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians again. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up there. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, seeing how the church at this time in Corinth and our church today is called to be countercultural and what that looks like amidst the world. So we are in 1 Corinthians 5 today said we're in 1 Corinthians 5, so I'm going to read there. Please follow along with me as I read. This is the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word written, Lord, for the Corinthians and for us, Lord, to be instructed by and to see Jesus Christ in, to see your work of salvation and goodness to us. And Lord, we pray that we would this morning see you through your word for all that you're worth And see Christ and what He's done for us. That we would be changed individually, Lord, and collectively as a church for your glory. That through the church, you would be glorified in the world. We thank you for this time. We pray your blessing upon it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no one here in this room that has not been affected by it. Uh, Sickness and disease are a result of sin coming into the world it's a part of living in this fallen broken world even if you are relatively healthy we've all had the common cold or or the flu although sickness and disease still plague our world we also live in a time of great advancements in technology and medicine technology and medicine are part of God's common grace to the world that he he's making the world or made the world not as bad as it could be only one or two hundred years ago, it was very common for women or infants to die in the birthing process. Now, at least in the first world where we live, such deaths are very minimal. Many diseases that have been deadly in the past have been almost wiped out. While there are still many diseases that have no medicinal cure, there are many that do. When a diagnosis is correct, the right medicine is used, and the body responds Sickness is often removed from the body. God is still working then, but he does at times use medicine in that way. And this is something for which I'm sure we are all thankful. We won't live forever physically, we know that, but I'm sure that we're all grateful for health when God gives it. Just as God has given medicine to bring health to our physical bodies, so he has given something to the body of Christ to bring her health. He has given discipline to bring health to the body of Christ. As we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, we have seen that the Corinthian church is very young and immature. Paul was writing to help them understand what the church is supposed to be and how the church is to relate to the world. They, They are not who they should be. The church is filled with boasting, arrogance, division, sexual immorality, and other things. Since the Corinthian church isn't what it should be, its witness to the world is also compromised. That's a big deal. The Corinthian church seems to be hardly distinct from the world at all. Most regular citizens of Corinth probably saw little, if any, rec- recognizable difference between these Corinthians who proclaim Christ and everybody else. Paul wrote to the Corinthians to help them understand. That what Christ has done for them should result in visible change. The church should be distinct. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul calls the Corinthians sanctified in Christ Jesus and calls and called to be saints. He goes on to say in verse 7 that they are not lacking in any gift. In Christ they have all they need. Although, although these things are spiritually true of the Corinthians, they don't seem to be visible in real life. They don't seem, the Corinthians, to be sanctified or holy. They seem pretty much just like the world. There should be change that is noticeable, both individually and collectively. But there was little, if any. But God, in His grace and goodness, will bring to completion what He has started in the Corinthians. And as part of that process, they need some medicine For it to happen, an indispensable medicine that will bring healing and wholeness to their church body, and that medicine is corrective discipline. The Corinthian church was sick and diseased, but she did not have to stay that way. She could grow towards becoming what God desired her to be. In our passage today, we'll see that because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, the church must be a distinct people through practicing corrective discipline discipline. A significant part of the problem that we see here in chapter 5 is that there is an instance of sexual immorality within their body, and it's a kind not even tolerated among the pagans. And rather than be mournful over such sin, they have an arrogant attitude. The disease in their church is not just about what is seen with this instance of sexual immorality. Long before cancer or another serious disease manifests itself outwardly, there is a lack of health in the body. Along with their arrogance and pride was a super dangerous tolerance of sin. Unrepentant sin, when taken lightly, causes destruction. The Corinthian church was being destroyed in large part because they took sin lightly. And this, this same danger applies to us today. If we take unrepentant sin lightly, whether individually or collectively, the body of Christ, the Church, is sure to be destroyed. We cannot take sin lightly, but rather, as we said earlier, since Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, we the church must be a distinctive people through practicing corrective discipline. So as we work our way through the passage, we'll see that corrective discipline is for three things. It is for the wholeness of the individual, the health of the church and the holiness. Of God. So that's where we're going, but before we get there and dive into those points, I want to just take a, a brief uh, couple of minutes here to help us understand discipline more broadly, biblically. When the word discipline is used, I think our minds automatically think negative. We think of consequences or punishment. We might think of discipline that we received as a kid, or maybe if you are a kid now or a youth in here, you might think of discipline that your parents give you now, or well, that's spanking perhaps for a small child or removal of privileges, whatever is that might be. And this is a key aspect of discipline, correction. But discipline is much more broad than just corrective discipline. The word discipline obviously has much correlation with disciple or discipleship. To be under discipline is essentially to be a disciple. It involves positive and formative elements in addition to corrective ones. Um, To be under discipline involves seeing and emulating Christian leaders, just as Jesus' disciples emulated him. And Paul told the Corinthians last week in chapter 4, imitate me. To be under discipline um, involves receiving teaching and spiritual input to help you become what Christ has called you to be. So even right now, we're all under the discipline of the church because we're under the teaching of the church. And that's a good thing. Or consider this example. A student is under his math teacher's discipline when the teacher does these various things. When a teacher models a life of character, when the teacher formally teaches the material, when the teacher grades and marks answers wrong, and when, if needed, the teacher corrects behavior. Although I won't give all the, the, the same details from this analogy, the it would also apply to the, the coach and athlete relationship. It's a life it's relationship of discipline. That discipline is positive and formative as well as corrective. So, although not straight from our passage, to understand corrective discipline biblically, we have to understand that it is just part of the discipline God has for his people through the local church, alongside formative and positive discipline. But as we do turn back to the text, we see our first point that corrective discipline is for the wholeness of the individual. And we'll see that in this passage, that corrective discipline is for the wholeness of the individual. Verse 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so this spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Since Paul does not name this man, it seems clear that the congregation already knows who Paul is talking about. Though he does not give his name, he clearly identifies him through the sin he is involved in. Paul identified and exposed the sin. If you have cancer, you want it to be clearly diagnosed, you want it to be exposed for what it is. If it is hidden, it will bring death to the whole body. To expose it is the first step towards healing for both the individual and the Corinthian church. So this individual and his sin is exposed and a judgment is given. In verse 2, Paul says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Later in verse 13, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy saying, Purge the evil person from among you. In the Old Testament, this refrain was said often when sin threatened the community. Purge the evil person from among you. If this man is being removed from the church, he must have first been considered part of the church. So he had to have been a member. Out of any book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians likely tells us the most about church membership, although it's throughout the New Testament and in a different way in the Old Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, Paul gives the illustration of the physical body, which is one body with many members or parts so it is with the body of Christ, one body with many members. This man had, had been a member of the church, but he was to be no longer. He is to be excluded or purged, so that we know he must first have been included. To be excluded, you first have to have been included. Through membership, the church affirms the credibility of someone's profession of faith. Paul is saying the church should no longer affirm that this person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ is credible. It is sure, it is within in the realm of possibility that his profession of, of faith in Christ is credible. But because of his behavior and unrepentance, it is highly, highly doubtful. It would actually be very harmful if the church were to continue to affirm that he is a believer. The church would give him confidence that he should not have. That would be dangerous to his soul. One who knows Christ lives a life of repentance. The church is filled with sinners, like me, but sinners that are repentant and cling to faith in Christ as their only hope. This man is a sinner too, the man that's being excluded here, but he is unrepentant, and that's the difference. Repentant sinners versus unrepentant sinners. He is unrepentant. So he was to be handed over to Satan. Sounds harsh, and it is. It's drastic. But it's ultimately for his good and wholeness. He is to be cast out of the church, given to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, in verse 5. When it says flesh here, it is actually not completely clear as to whether it means our sinful flesh, as opposed to our spirit, or our bodily flesh. Without getting into all the details, there are good arguments for both. But it seems as though bodily flesh is actually in view here. Think of Job, for instance, whose body was given over to Satan for a time within the goodness and sovereignty of God for the glory and purposes of God. Paul, though not out of corrective discipline, he even had some sort of physical thorn in the flesh that was used in God's goodness and sovereignty to to help him more fully rely upon the grace of God. This man's flesh was to be given over to Satan, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This corrective discipline was for the man's wholeness, his completeness. See, this man was living a lie. He is not whole. And that is what sin does. At creation, at the beginning, man was perfectly integrated. His relationship within himself, also with Eve and with God, was perfect. He not only had perfect outward harmony but he had perfect inward harmony, and sin destroyed that. We were created to be perfectly integrated people, to be completely unified within. Sin causes us, though, to be full of contradictions. It causes us to be disintegrated. This man is living a lie. He said that he is a believer, but he is not living like it and is not even repentant. In the first Sunday school lesson of the series that we're in, which, again, we'd encourage you to be there at 915. It's a great series we're going through, Mark's of the Healthy Church. Uh, Mark Dever said that when the church disciplines through removing membership, the church is getting rid of those that are more committed to their sin than committed to Christ. That is what is happening here. This man is more committed to his sin than he is committed to Christ. And that's why he's being purged from the community. Because he's proven to love his sin more than Christ, he had to be removed from the body. His sin not only caused him to be disconnected from others and from God, he is even disconnected from himself. Salvation comes to us that we would be both growing in holiness and in wholeness. Sin brings guilt and shame that causes internal conflict. As our sin is dealt with at the cross, we gain freedom and acceptance. We can know and love ourselves. As the image of God is restored in us through Christ, we become more unified, harmonious, and whole within. This corrective discipline is for the man's salvation, his wholeness. This discipline is so that what he he says about himself, he says that he knows Christ, would actually be true about himself, that he really does know Christ. He's not whole because what he says in reality are in contradiction, so he's not whole. The aim, of, uh, the aim of discipline in the church is always for the good, for the wholeness of the individual, whether it be a small correction or more extreme, as in this case, the goal is this man's ultimate salvation when he stands before Christ. A few days ago, I was reading a story about how the staff of the, the Golden State Warriors, now they're, they're staff, not the, the, the players on the team, the Golden State Warriors are an NBA team, about how the staff have this annual game against inmates of the San Quentin State Prison in California. They've done it every year now for six years, seems like a really neat thing. And this most recent time, the inmates won the game, which was a really big deal for them. Toward the end of the article, a man nicknamed ATL, he said, he said I'm think, I'm think, I thank God I went to prison, as he wiped away his tears. I wouldn't be the man I am today. I had arrogance and pride, and God humbled me. God used this situation to build character, to build me into the man I have to be. I'm just so blessed. Although not in the church, this man's story illustrates God's good intentions for corrective discipline. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. At this point, I think there are two necessary questions that we have to ask. The first is rather blunt and bold, but has to be asked. The first question is, are you living a lie today? Are you living a lie today? Do you say that you know Christ, but your life does not show it because of unrepentant sin? If so, that can all change today. Confess your sin to someone you know that loves God and loves you and turn to Christ in repentance and faith. We don't have to live a lie. We were created to be whole. We, We can all be whole, not perfect, but we can be whole as we walk in repentance and faith. For those those of us who can only by God's grace say that we aren't living a lie, we must ask if if we're ready to receive corrective discipline when necessary, justified, and appropriate. God uses corrective discipline in the lives of His children in, in our lives for His wholeness, for our wholeness, that our thoughts, attitudes, and actions would increasingly match the perfect righteousness that is already ours in Christ. The vast majority of the time, corrective discipline won't be as severe as when someone is removed from the body, as in 1 Corinthians 5 here. But it certainly is a possibility, depending on the situation, and if there is willful unrepentance. Often, corrective discipline will be less extreme. It could be something such as, you know, uh, friend, I'm not sure your interaction with so-and-so was gentle and patient. It could be something like... um, I'm not sure you have the right interpretation and application of that verse. Let's study that a little bit more together. It could be something like, you know, I care about you, and I notice that you and your spouse seem to be drifting apart. It could be something like, I care about your family, I, you know, I love you guys, and I've noticed that you seem to have an attitude of a consistent attitude of harshness with your kids rather than gentleness. Corrected discipline is for our wholeness that our profession of faith in Christ would match our lives. So we've first seen that corrective discipline is for the wholeness of the individual, that he would be restored, that he would be whole, that he would have ultimate salvation in Christ. Second, now we see that corrective discipline is for the health of the church. Verses 6 through 8 say, "'Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump?' Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us th- therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In this section, Paul uses the illustration of how only a little tiny pinch of leaven leavens the whole lump he does that to display the effects of sin on the body of Christ. In the ancient world, leaven was a piece of fermented dough that was taken and put into the new lump of dough so that the new lump of dough would become fermented as well. And then then the bread, when it baked, it would rise. If a lump of dough was unleavened, putting um, even the smallest piece of leaven in it would cause the whole lump to be leavened. So when the Lord rescued the Israelites from Egypt, he did it so quickly that their dough did not have time to leaven. So they ate unleavened or flat bread. The Lord commanded them to continue to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread yearly by eating unleavened bread and not even having any leaven in their homes. Just as a little leaven leavens the whole lump, one unrepentant sinner affects the whole body of Christ. Paul then reminds them who they are, saying, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. He reminds them that they are really sanctified. They're holy in Christ. They are saints. As we talked about at the beginning, as it says in chapter 1, because they are holy in God's sight, it's not fitting for this individual to be among them. He's essentially telling the church at Corinth there, Be what you already are. You are holy, unleavened, so don't have leaven among you. Don't have this person among you. Paul is confident in their status as unleavened or holy because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. That's what he tells them. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they sacrificed their Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorposts so that the destroying angel would would pass over them. Leon Morris comments that because of this, what was a slave rabble emerged from Egypt as the people of God. Paul wants the Corinthians to be reminded that just as Israel was delivered from slavery by the Passover and made the people of God, the death of Christ delivered these Corinthians from slavery to evil and made them the people of God. Paul is pointing toward an emphasis on new life. In ancient Israel, before subsequent Passovers were celebrated, so you had the original Passover, but then every year the Israelites celebrated the Passover to remember what God has had done. And as these subsequent Passovers were celebrated, a diligent search was made for any leaven, and it had to be removed or destroyed before the lamb was offered in the temple. What Paul is saying is that since Christ has been sacrificed, who is who all Passover lambs pointed to, since he's already been sacrificed, it's time and past time that the leaven or sin be removed. The leaven was supposed to be removed before the lamb was sacrificed. Christ has been sacrificed, therefore the sin is supposed to be removed. Since Christ died to redeem us from all sin, if we continue to live in sin, we are living against the design of his life and death and are not truly interested and all the benefits that come to us in Christ. When he says, keep the feast, in verse 8, he's not telling them to continue to keep the Passover. He's telling, them to, he's telling them that the believer does not live by the way of his old life, in malice and evil, but his new life in Christ is characterized by sincerity and truth. The feast of unleavened bread was fulfilled in Christ we have accepted Christ's sacrifice, the fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the body of Christ, the church, without unrepentant sin among it. Because the body of Christ is one in Christ, even an illness or injury of the smallest part affects the whole body. Um, Some years ago, I uh, coached middle school basketball when I was in Moscow, and um, one of the days, I think it was actually the last day, our last practice of the season, I was scrimmaging with, with the team. I was playing defense, you know, with my hands out like you're supposed to. And uh, with my hands out, the ball, I deflected the ball. But when I did, the whole ball, I think, um, the whole force of the ball went on my pinky. And my pinky bent a way that it's not supposed to. Uh, I don't remember which way exactly, but I think the, that first big joint there went that way, like that. Um not not fun, hurt a little bit. Um but that's that's an example of how something small even as small as our pinky when it's not as it should be, it affects the whole body. My whole body felt the pain of that. It went the pain went through my whole body. I felt it all. Sin with its destruction and pain affects the whole body. So it's not just your sin. And oftentimes We think about our sin that way, and when we do, it's in error. It's not just, it is our sin, but it's also the sin that we're bringing to the body of Christ, and it does affect others. If you have unrepentant sin today, it affects the whole church body. The corrective discipline of this individual is being used by God for the health of the body, to warn the body and protect the body. Although we ought to hate sin and its destructive effects in, in, in everyone's life, God also uses it to warn us of its destruction. When I hear about the immoral failure of a pastor, I'm reminded of my own sin and the destruction it causes, my need to guard my heart and my marriage and to cling to Christ in repentance and faith. The removal of this man in Corinth is also for the protection of the body. Using the illustration of cancer again, if cancer is present, whenever possible, you want that cancer to be removed so it doesn't kill the rest of the body. And the same idea applies here. I really think that one of the major reasons that the U.S. church is so unhealthy today is because of the neglect of corrective church discipline. If cancer and disease remain in the body without the medicine of discipline, That cancer or disease destroys. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In 1937, Richard Niebuhr criticized the the liberal social gospel, saying this about it. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's basically saying... I mean, there are a lot of things in there, but he's basically saying like the, the, liberal, the church that's based on the liberal social gospel is a church without discipline in any form or fashion. And how much have we seen that play out? There are tons of churches out there without any corrective discipline whatsoever, but I promise you, you don't want to be a part of one of them. Because as we'll see, even as we go throughout this message more, where corrective discipline is absent, the gospel is also weakened or maybe even completely absent. So as a local church, we have to practice corrective discipline when necessary. When discipline is withheld, love is withheld. Also, if we love God and we love people, we will be a church that pursues the right practice of corrective discipline. Corrective discipline is an expression of love. So the question is, as a body, are we... Committed to practice corrective discipline in love, as outlined in Scripture. It is for our good to do so, for our health. Paul is writing to the whole body at Corinth. So while elders are called to lead, obviously, in the exercise of corrective discipline, God's will is for the whole body to understand it and support it for her own health. But it is not merely for the health of the church, but it is for something much greater what the health of the church supports. And that's our last point. We've seen that correct discipline is for the wholeness of the individual. It's for the health of the church. Now we see that it is for the holiness of God. Paul wrote, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In the previous letter, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and told them not to associate with the sexually immoral. He was likely talking about the same individual who was not... ...that they probably misunderstood thinking he was talking about someone else who was not a part of the church. Paul is trying to correct them, saying, If someone bears the name of brother, or sister for that matter, but here in the text brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, don't associate with him. God's people have God's name upon them. God's people represent God to the world. God's people are supposed to show the world What God is like. If a person claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, that means they claim God as their father, and that's a big deal. In 1 Peter, Peter says to elect exiles of the dispersion in Asia, in Asia Minor, he says in uh, 2 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light if if god's people seem anything but chosen to the world that the world is watching if they seem anything but priestly if they seem anything but holy if god's people seem anything but god's our proclamation of god to the world will not be of his excellencies they will not see and hear his excellencies they will think he's awful and that's a tragedy. We will proclaim to the world something that is not true about God. That would be, and often is, incredibly sad. A world that desperately needs to see God for who He is, and at times they look at the church and see Him for all He is not. And again, that should sadden each one of us terribly. That's not always the case. I think that oftentimes the church or the world looks at the church and sees Christ. But I think, unfortunately, sometimes the world looks at the church and does not see Christ, sees something else. And unfortunately, this happens uh, more than we would like to admit. But corrective discipline must be in the church so that the church is a good witness for Jesus. This church cares about the glory of God. This church cares about lake mills and the world seeing Jesus for all his beauty, holiness, glory, and majesty. That is why, whether it be me or someone else who would claim to be a brother or sister in Christ, but willfully, unrepentantly defames the name of Christ, they must no longer be associated with this church as a member. This church exists for the glory of God more than anything else. When unrepentant sin is tolerated or made light of in the church, then the church is existing for me and no longer for the glory of God. Corrective discipline is for the holiness of God. When we don't practice it, we ultimately say that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection doesn't matter. Because why did Jesus come? Jesus came to save sinners from their sin. Jesus, not, Jesus did not come to say, I'm good with your sin. You can keep your sin and have me too. No, he came to rescue us, to deliver us from it. And at the cross, God's glory is wonderfully revealed because he proved to be just and holy while at the same time being merciful and loving. If we fail to practice corrective discipline, we fail as a church to represent God's character faithfully because we fail to display his holiness and justice. Corrective discipline is for the holiness of God, and this is very, very, very good news because there is no true gospel and no salvation in Christ without the holiness of God. The church must practice corrective discipline so that the world sees Jesus for who he is. What could be more important than the world seeing Jesus for who he is through the church? Nothing. Nothing. And when we are being the church we should be, rather than not associating with the world, we should associate with the world so that they will see Jesus. The church often doesn't do this well. We should be holy and we should associate with the world for the glory of God. Even however the Lord leads your family through Halloween, be the church in the world that the world would see Christ through our witness as the church. So we've seen in this passage that because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, the church must be a distinct people through practicing corrective discipline. If we take unrepentant sin lightly, whether individually or collectively, the body of Christ, the church, is sure to be destroyed. God did not take sin lightly. His justice and holiness would not allow him to. He sent Christ who took on our sin, who stood in our place. We were each that person of whom Paul said, purge the evil from among you. We've each been that person. But Christ took our sin. He took our evil and was purged in our place. Christ took our sin and went out from the community out of Jerusalem to the hill of Golgotha that our sin might be fully and forever dealt with there. He, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed that we might live in newness of life, that we would not be leavened but unleavened. We are sanctified in Christ as the Corinthians were. Let us then live out what is already true of us. He was crushed for our iniquities that we might be made whole. He bore the church's infirmities that she might be healthy, his spotless bride. He took all our sin that the holiness of God would be exalted. In God's grace and goodness, he has given an indispensable medicine to the church for her health. He has given corrective discipline to the church to keep her from disease and destruction, to keep the church healthy that she might glorify God in the world. Corrective discipline, as we've seen, is for the wholeness of the individual, it's for the health of the church, and the holiness of God. Question to leave us with, will you rejoice in the goodness of God in corrective discipline and joyfully submit your life to corrective discipline in the church for the glory of God and for the world? as the world watches the church. Let's pray. 1 uh, Peter, in, in the book of First Peter, Peter wrote to a church as well there. And he said this, starting in, in verse 10 of chapter 2. He said, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As you go, be the church in the world. Be distinct, be holy, be set apart, that the church may see Christ and be drawn to him. Go, go in peace.